Good evening, everybody. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to class number two of the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell class. Uh, I'm glad that you could join me here this evening. Um, oh, what a wonderful group of people tonight. We've got a, a great turnout. Um, and I am uh, I am looking forward to some fun discussion. Um, first, as ever, let, let me uh, make a few announcements. Uh, as, of course, we are... Uh, we are... We are heavy with announcements uh, in this particular season. Uh, where We have many, many things going on. As many of you know, um, uh, as many of you know, we are uh, we have just launched as of last night. We have just launched our annual fundraiser, which is a very exciting time. Um, we've got a whole bunch of things coming up. We're doing our fundraiser from from yesterday, from Hobbit Day all the way through Halloween, um, and we have a whole series of special events uh, that are um, that are being planned. Um, we have uh, one thing I wanted to particularly emphasize: um, the Mythgard Academy, uh, which is bringing you the Jonathan Strange, Mister Norrell class. The Jonathan Strange, Mister Norrell class is the culmination of our second full season, our second full year running the Mythgard Academy class. These uh, this uh, series of open classes in which uh, you, our supporters, those of you who have donated in the past to to make this program possible and to help keep the lights on here at uh, Signum and Mythgard. Um, you guys are, you have uh, chosen uh, the uh, all of the books, uh, including, of course, as I mentioned last time, uh, this one, which uh, I, I had never read before, so I've been having such great fun uh, going through. Boy, reading this book for a second time is really, really interesting. But anyhow, anyhow okay, I'll give that in a minute. Um, but... Um, we're going to be, as I said, we're going to be celebrating the Mythgard Academy uh, as we, in one of our featured programs during our fundraiser. And one of the things that we're going to do is I'm going to do, in addition to the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell class, uh, I'm going to do a couple bonus episodes. We're going to do a couple sort of brief... Um, brief one-shot classes, sort of mini uh, Mythgard Academy classes. Um, One during the the penultimate week of October, and one during our webathon. So we're going to have the big, like, Eight hour or something webathon at the end of uh, at the end of the campaign on Halloween, um, and so I'm going to do a special session then too. And the two things I chose to, I chose to do two things which I thought would be really fun, but which I suspected would never get elected because they're short. Um, they're sort of short and kind of different. Um, so one of them and and the sort of they they kind of follow the pattern of uh, the way that our, our electorate has tended to vote uh, over the past two years. That is sort of alternating between. A Tolkien thing and something else. Um, so I'm going to do two one-shot classes during the uh, bonus one-shot classes over the next month. Uh, one on Tolkien and one on something else. Uh, the Tolkien one is I'm going to do during the webathon on Halloween, and we're going to do a one uh, a one class discussion of the Father Christmas letters. If you've uh, never read the Father Christmas letters, you totally should. They're delightful. Um, and we will, uh, we will uh, we'll dig into the, the, the Father Christmas letters and look at those in detail on Halloween, uh, during, probably sometime in the afternoon on Halloween. Um, on the penultimate week of October, during the week in which we're going to be really focusing on the Mythgard Academy, um, I'm going to do a special episode. So again, so I'll, I'll be do, we'll be doing two Mythgard Academy sessions that week, um, and that will be on an episode of Doctor Who. Um, I have uh, just over this past year begun. Uh, um, 
begun discussing uh, or begin you know be- begun watching the uh, the new Doctor Who, um, which I have uh, very much loved. I'm now nearing the end of season seven of the uh, of the reboot. Uh, I'm very late uh, a very late comer to Doctor Who, who had uh, long since sort of given up. I'm a completionist, so the idea of I really wanted to go back and start at season one, you know, like fifty years ago, uh, and that didn't really turn out to be practicable. But um, anyway, so I, in the end, I just gave up and I started with the reboot and have been watching from there. Um, but uh, and I've been I've been really loving it. I, I'm I'm I I just adore the new Doctor Who. Uh, so anyway, we're I'm I'm still I'm just not decided on an episode. We're going to do a single episode. Um, those of you who uh, took the Princess Bride class, for instance, may remember uh, in how much detail I really enjoy d- discussing film uh, and looking at clips and doing some sort of close reading of it. I want to do that same kind of treatment uh, to a Doctor Who episode. So. Um, I haven't decided. I've got a few finalists. Uh, I'm kind of choosing between... Uh, I think my top three candidates right now are the ones I was actually discussing on Twitter with uh, uh, with uh, several friends and students there. Um, uh, my, my, my three finalists are probably Blink, uh, The Girl in the Fireplace, and The Eleventh Hour. That is the uh, uh, Matt Smith's first episode, uh, the... Uh, the uh, uh, Fish fingers and custard episode. Uh, so those are those are my those are my top candidates. Um, I haven't fully narrowed it down yet. Um, oh, Carita penultimate has been a favorite word of mine for years, uh, uh, which uh, I, I was sort of reflecting recently. Like you could tell by how young my children started using the word penultimate casually in, converta- in conversation. How often I, I go out of my way to work <laughs> that word into uh, into uh, into my conversation. Um, uh, yeah, Tom, it's true. I do use the word antepenultimate as well. Uh, you know, the, uh, the 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 third to last um, wonderful word. But um, anyway, okay. Um, uh, so what, I, I, I'll announce the Doctor Who episode that I finally choose. But anyway, I'm leaning towards one of those three. Uh, but anyway, it's going to be a lot of fun. So we'll we'll have a special episode on Doctor uh, Doctor Who. We'll have a special episode on the Father Christmas letters. Bunches of other things going on uh, during the course of the campaign as well. One thing, uh, one thing. In, well, I should. Uh, I just sort of bring up for a second. This is our campaign webpage. So if you go to signumuniversity.org or mythgard.org, you will see one of these buttons, which will take you to this page. This is our the beginning of our drive for the annual fund, the Signum University Annual Fund. Um, and uh, you know, Signum has been uh, Signum and Mythgard, which are sort of one combined entity, um, have. Um, have been really relying on, on, on your support for a long time. This program, the Mythgard Academy, has been uh, wonderful uh, for the last two years. It's been, I, I, it has made me very happy uh, to be able to have these kinds of discussions with people, um, you know, for free, to have them open, for people to be able to download them for free. Of course, as our library of courses grows and more and more people get to hear about it, of course, our costs have risen uh, in being able to continue offering these things for free. Um, so, you know, uh, this is uh, why we come back every year to, uh, you know, ask for your continued support uh, as we move forward. So, um so again, this is our this is our uh, this is our campaign. You can find some more information. One thing I wanted to draw your attention to, as I said, there are things going on throughout uh, the uh, campaign. One is a brand new thing we've never done before, which is a creative writing contest. Um, and this is really fun. This is a flash fiction writing contest. So uh, if you go, you see uh, down to the, uh, this link right here is one place where you can find uh, this page. 
and this gives you the details. We have this uh, a, a video giving you full instructions and tips and suggestions about how to uh, compose your fiction. Uh, we have different themes for each of the weeks. Um, along with some different instructions, and then uh, there's a link for a suggested donation uh, and a place to put your submission. Soon we're going to have our first uh, round of, of candidates. People have already submitted this week, and more will be added as they come in, um, so that everybody can go through and read them. They're short. They're like 300 words uh, this week. Um, some of them will be even shorter than that. And you can go through and vote on your favorites, and uh, the winners are going to be published in a special uh, uh, ebook that's going to be published uh, in conjunction with Aloris Press. So it's uh, it's uh, it's really fun, free to enter. Again, we suggested donation to uh, to help support the cause. Um, but uh, but anyway, I hope you will uh, check this out. It's been it's been really fun so far. Um, <laughs> okay um and as i said so any any of these links will take you to our donation page um this is our donation page which is being for some reason extremely uh, understated i don't know why <laughs> this page has spontaneously reduced the font in which it's showing how much we've we've raised already um this actually only shows the uh the money that has actually come in already in pledges we've received more we've we've received already almost $2,000 in pledges in our, in our first 24 hours. We just launched the campaign last night. Uh, so we're already 10% of the way to our initial goal, um, you know, our, our sort of first threshold goal uh, in the first 24 hours, which is just fantastic. Really, uh, really excited about that. So this is what's going on. Don't forget that you do get, so you can get for our next season of the Mythgard Academy, if you've enjoyed the Mythgard Academy classes and want to get more involved, um, we have, uh, you know, for a, everyone who donates $25 or more gets voting rights to be able to help to determine um, which uh, which book we get to talk about next. Uh, those who donate $100, it's $100 spread out over the year, um, or given in a lump sum, whichever. Uh, for those who give $100 or more, you get, uh, uh, you get uh, a membership on the Council of the Wise who gets to nominate books and uh, vote on the slate of finalists that's then presented uh, to the entire electorate. So um, that's, um, uh, that, as again, how you can get involved uh, with, our, with uh, determining our future, uh, our future voting. So anyway... Lots of really exciting things going on. Um, oh, oh, and don't forget. See, I almost forgot already. Next week, uh, that is, it's actually next Wednesday, I believe, uh, in the afternoon. Before, so it's it's right before our next uh, session. So I wanted to make sure we mention it. We have our 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 our, our other next campaign event, uh, which is an interview with Dr. Andrew Higgins, um, uh, uh, conducted by uh, by uh, Signum's own Serena Higgins, and uh, we're going to be hearing from uh, Andrew Higgins. He just got his uh, his PhD. I think Andrew is a really inspiring story for, uh, I, I, at least I, I, I would uh, hope that you will find his story inspiring. Uh, you know, and Andy Higgins is a, is a sort of a Tolkien fan, just like you. He's one of those, one of the, one of the many people that I have met through the years of doing my podcast and through doing Mythgard, who has been just like many of you working in a totally unrelated field in a, you know, professional career, holding a good job, but loving Tolkien and really always wanting to sort of dig in uh, more to it. Um, you know, I, I remember meeting uh, Andy Higgins for the first time uh, back in 2010 at a Tolkien conference, which he was attending with great delight. And I remember having a conversation with him then. Andy, you should think about submitting a paper yourself someday. And I remember Andy being like, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure I could do that. Uh, and now here we are five years later, and he has not only become a published scholar in his own right, but he's now completed his PhD uh, uh, and uh, and is going to, and is co-editing a book of Tolkien's own materials, which is going to be published uh, in the spring. So it is, um, 
It is really cool. Uh, he's, a, he's, he's, he's a wonderful guy. He's going to be teaching a class with us in Mythgard on invented languages in the spring, so he'll be talking about that too. So that's going to be, you can look uh, for, there will be links to that here on the, in fact, I think there is a link here already. Yep, right up here at the top. Um, the Q&A with uh, Dr. Andrew Higgins next week. So um, anyway, uh, d- just, to, just to try to keep you in touch with all the things that are going on here at Mythgard this week. One final last thing, and I've mentioned it before, but it's coming up sooner now, and that is uh, the Mid-Atlantic Speculative Fiction Symposium, which is happening happening at the University of Maryland on Saturday, October 3rd. I'll be there. Uh, Dr. Rowan Flieger will be there. The editor of the new Coolervo book, which uh, has just come out in Europe, will come out in the spring in America. Um, and so she's going to be there. Um, uh, uh, Carl Hostetter is going to be there doing a doing a Q and A with her. Uh, so it's a great opportunity to come in a in a small environment for a one day conference, which costs almost nothing. It's ten bucks for the whole day, uh, and uh, you'll get to come and and be a part of some really awesome discussion and meet some really cool people and get a chance to uh, uh, to uh, uh, to meet Rowan Flieger, which is a which is a real treat. I have to tell you. Um, so, uh, so I hope to, I hope to get to, to, to see, I think I, I remember seeing the names of many of, uh, you, many of our regular attendees here in Myth- Mythgard Academy on the registration list, which is great. I'm looking forward to meeting many, some of you, I think in person for the first time, some of you again, uh, after having met you at a couple of our other events. So, uh, I, uh, I, I look forward to seeing you guys. It's now the weekend after next, actually, we're getting really close to it. So, uh, so that'd be great. Okay. That's the end of announcement. Sorry for a big fat announcement uh, 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 time tonight, but there's a whole lot going on. So, okay, let's talk about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. So, here's kind of the, the outline of what I want to look at tonight. Remember last time I was, I was sort of focusing on the way, the persistence with which the narrator of this book keeps talking about English magic, right? And I, it's, I find it, it's something that I find, I found it striking the first time reading it as I'm reading it for the second time. I find it even more striking. The, the, the ubiquity of that phrase in this book. Um, it seems to me, uh, you know, it, as I, again, as I reread, it seems to me increasingly a really dominant theme, or to put it a different way, sort of a dominant question, which is not explicitly asked nor explicitly answered uh, in the book, but which I find myself asking all the time, what is English magic? What makes English magic English? They never say just like magic in England, right? It's always English magic, restoring the glory of English magic. I want to see the return of English magic. Not just, I want to see the return of magic. Um, You know, hey, I believe in magic. Do you want to fight for magic? No, no, it's always English magic, right? So what is English magic? Um, And that's going to be sort of the overall focus today because uh, we see several different perspectives on that, right? I want to start off looking at the sort of preconceptions about English magic that we can just sort of see in the people, right? The kinds of things that come up which sort of betray what is associated with English magic in the minds of different people that we meet in the story, right? Then I want to look at Mr. Norrell specifically and his kind of conflicted relationship with English magic. Um, And then I want to end... uh, I want to end with, for those of you, uh, for the, I just, let me explain my, my, my self-deprecating reference here. Uh, for those of you who are new, I know that several of you have joined us for the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Neuro class, who I think haven't been in a bunch of our classes before. Um, uh, I 
don't have the most sterling reputation for getting through everything I wanted to talk about in a particular class. So whenever I talk about what I want to end the class with, it's always more of an aspirational statement, really. But anyway, uh, it is indeed my aspiration to get through to uh, Vinculus and the uh, the prophecy of the Raven King. Um, so that and again and to me that's uh, sort of the culmination of this particular section uh, of the book in that question about um, about about sort of thinking about English magic. Of course, along the way, when we look at Mister Norrell, we'll look uh, at least a little bit at his discussion uh, with the uh, man with the thistle down hair um, to look at the sort of fairy perspective on English magic, of course, and how Mister Norrell fits in from the fairy's point of view. So. That's the plan. You ready? Let's look at let's look at the preconceptions. Uh, uh, <laughs> Thank you, Kay. Kay says uh, a professor does never go over time, nor does he go under. A, pref- a professor teaches precisely what he means to. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. If I don't get to the end of my slides, it uh, means that getting to the end of my slides would obviously have been not a good thing. Okay. Uh, let's start with the reaction to the initial... So we're focusing in London here rather than in York and the Society of York Magicians, but I wanted to look at the... the this is, so this is a, a report of the sensation in London upon their reading the uh, article which Mr. Segundus was uh, sort of... <laughs> it was sort of suggested that he might want to write, right? Uh, Childermas kind of leaned on him a little bit uh, to write that article. Um so uh, uh, so let's let's look at this here. An appeal to the friends of English magic had a most sensational effect, particularly in London. The readers of the Times were quite thunderstruck by Mr. Norrell's achievements. There was a general desire to see Mr. Norrell. Young ladies pitied the poor old gentleman of York who had been so frightened by him and wished very much to be as terrified themselves. Clearly, such an opportunity as this was scarcely likely to come again. Mr. Norrell determined to establish himself in London with all possible haste. "'You must get me a house, Childermas,' he said. "'Get me a house that says to those that visit it "'that magic is a respectable profession, "'no less than law, and a great deal more so than medicine.'" What do we see here? What do we learn here? Now, again, I want to repeat what I said last time. Um, It's always tempting to kind of jump ahead and be making connections with what happens later in the book, and we'll get there. But I want to be, I I always like to be orderly about these things. Um, And I think part of the fun of looking at what the book is doing and how the book works um, is sort of looking at the way, and especially with this story, and its leisurely pace. It's just sort of look at the way that things are revealed. How are we as readers being brought into this secondary world? What is, um, I'm interested not just in you know, give me a summary from based on the whole book of what you think English magic is. But what has been revealed to us here? You know, by, by page fifty-one, what has been revealed to us about English magic? Because I think that that progression, the the the, if I can put it this way, the relationship between the story and the reader that's established um, over the course of this book is to me one of the things that makes the this story as a story, really remarkable. Um, and I thought made it, uh, made it especially successful. Um, okay, so what do we learn here? What do we learn about Mr. Norrell? 
What do we learn about English magic, about English understanding of magic? The, the general, remember, one thing that we get referred to many times, nobody is shocked about magic, right? The one reaction nobody ever has to the idea of somebody doing magic in England is, what? I don't believe in magic. There are some people who question that the stories of the Orient magicians are real, right? Some of the York uh, society would quite like to think that many of those things are exaggerated. But the idea that, like, magic isn't, you know, basically you think about the way in which, oh, say, the real world has tended to operate, and especially operated in the 19th century. One of the things that was... uh, quite remarkable about the 18th and 19th century in England is the, the the sort of rationalist project, the way in which it became very, very unpopular uh, to actually believe in, uh, to some extent, uh, 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 the, even sort of the supernatural in general, but, but, but certainly magic and fairies and things like that. Fairy tales continue to be told to children, but... Uh, but actually to believe in magic for a grown person uh, in, you know, 1815, uh, 1807, around where we are already in this point. And, and, you know, for, for, for a person like that to say that they believed in magic um, would be crazy. Within the world of the book, though, it would clearly be crazy. I mean, it puts you in the distinct minority, if not on the lunatic fringe, to say that you don't think magic ever existed or is at all possible, right? So... Magic is a given. It's, magic is plainly a given. Remember how the narrator keeps, you know, occasionally will drop a sentence like, everyone, of course, has heard all the stories, you know, has heard all these things in their, you know, in their, in their childhood days, right? They had learned all these things as a matter of course in school. Everyone knew about, you know, the Raven King and his kingdom and all these things. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's a given. Um, uh, you know, they, they're as familiar with the figure of the Raven King and his throne in the north. They're as familiar with that as, you know, they are with the the Battle of Agincourt and, and uh, you know, the Norman Conquest, right? I mean, it's just completely normal, right? So, um, so that's the one reaction we don't see people having. Sheer, simple, flat skepticism of that kind. I don't believe in supernatural things. I don't think magic is possible. What do we see, though? What do we see, though? Um, and, and again, so what do we see about the public perception of magic, and what do we see of Mr. Norrell in this passage? Now, many people have already answered this question as I've been rambling, and there's a whole lot of things. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I agree. English magic is not associated with respectability in the popular mind. Um, uh Yes, and I agree with Emily Metcalf that people are very curious about it. Um, yeah, uh, Karina says uh, it's present in the public public consciousness, but not considered serious or respectable. Um, yes, yes. Um, how is it seen? There's much excitement, right? Um, there is, uh, and actually, I think that uh, John uh, Moline, I think, has a really great um, point. Uh, his word is, uh, there's a sort of a general titillation about it. That's very much uh, how it's described. Young ladies pitied the poor old gentleman of York who had been so frightened and wished very much to be as terrified themselves, right? There's a kind of thrill-seeking in it, um, plainly. I mean, that's, that seems to be the context of that. Um, it's not... The reaction is excitement, 
thun- you know, being thunderstruck, being curious, but not uh, in awe, not deferential, right? Not full of somber respect. That's not what we see. Um, and uh, can I say also, I love the ambiguity of the sentence that begins clearly such an opportunity, right? Of course, in the larger context of this passage, you know, the passage that, uh, you know, in the paragraphs that came before, we're talking about Mr. Norrell's opportunity to popularize English. You know, he's going to try to bring back English magic, right? He's, 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 he's going to be the one who brings uh, uh, English magic back into the modern era. Um, so it's Mr. Norrell's opportunity, right? But in the immediate context of this paragraph, it's not obvious who the first part... It's only when it, we get to Mr. Norrell determined to establish himself that it's clear that the first half of the sentence refers to Mr. Norrell, right? But um, the, uh, the, the young ladies w- who wished very much to be as terrified themselves, clearly such an opportunity as this was scarcely likely to come again. For the ladies... Or for Mr. Norrell, right? it could be either one. Uh, and that's, uh, every time I read this paragraph, I think it's talking about the ladies first, right? That is, there's a kind of novelty here, and a sense of scarcity, right? This doesn't happen anymore. So, it would be like, uh, there seems to be a sense in which the appearance of a practical magician, who can really do, like, old school, not, you know, sleight of hand stuff that a street magician might do, or try to try to fob off, or you think of the way that, uh, that uh, Vinculus, that long description of Vinculus's career and how he did that thing where he used the, the, the mouth organ to fake the voice of the River Thames, right? So he would utter prophecies in the voice of the River Thames, right? You know, that's one thing. But to actually do magic like, like old school, the kind of magic that you would read about of the, you know, the great legendary English magicians like Ralph Stokesy, right? Um, uh, and Thomas Godbless, uh, the Raven King, um, that kind of magic coming. I mean, it's like it's like meeting a live dinosaur. Um, and so again, that sense of clearly such an opportunity as this was scarcely likely to come again. It's like there's a live dinosaur walking around, and you know it might not survive, and it's probably the only one. So see it bef- while you have the chance, right? There is, you know, it, it, I, again, I you know I know that that first clause is. You know, the second half of the sentence does make clear that it's referring to Mr. Norrell's opportunity. But as I said, I really like the ambiguity of it because that does seem to be the sort of species of uh, of excitement that is being aroused in people. It's a novelty. They're they're astounded, but nobody seems to be saying the great time. You know, the Orient, the the golden age has come again. Oh, hooray! Magic has been restored to England. They're not talking like that. They're like, wow, freak show, sweet. I love a freak show, right? This is uh, this is really exciting. Um, let's see it before it dies or something. Um, but uh, anyway, so uh, so uh, yeah, good, good. Um, oh goodness, so many good, uh, so many good comments, which I don't have time to. Uh, um, to talk about all of them, but um, yeah, could, uh, you know, Timothy. That's a really interesting point. Timothy Fisher says, and Tim, we'll come back to this later on in the book, uh, that uh, this Regency period at the beginning of the Romantic movement, with its love of the supernatural and the dark after the Enlightenment, yeah, yeah, um, that's one of the really fun. Th- I, I get there's so many ways in which I love 
the way in which Clark has reimagined <clears throat> this historical period, and that's one of them, right? Um, because the fact is, this is the Romantic era, um, and this is a time in which um, even sort of what the word romantic or picturesque came to mean in that time is something very different from what it meant before and what it will come to mean after. And um, the idea that uh, this actually sort of correlates with, that, that she would sort of infuse into that period an actual revival of real magic, the way that she brings Jonathan Strange's career into connection with the career of Lord Byron later on, love it, love it. That, well, that, that's when we're going to come back and talk about this later, but Timothy, that's, that's, it's a really good point. Um, okay, good. All right, so uh, what do we see about Mr. Norrell? Here, what's Mr. Norrell's perspective? He is insisting... Um, yeah, Kristen uh, Thompson says, Mr. Norrell didn't want to say that magic should be more respectable than the church. Yes, Kristen, but he, he clearly... He had to think long and hard, right? He says, no, no, okay, no, we can't really claim that, right? But it doesn't mean he doesn't believe it, right? So absolutely. Mr. Norrell clearly believes that... Um, uh, that magic has a certain standing. What standing, exactly? Does anybody... Uh, people who are familiar with 19th century novels, you know, Jane Austen fans out there, um, by, by, class, by, by classing it between law and medicine, in what context is he putting magic? How is he inviting... Uh, how is he suggesting he wants people to view magicians as... As what? What's the, there's a there's a when you're talking about law and profession and yes, yeah, law and uh, and the church and medicine. We're talking about what's the? Is anyone familiar with the relevant 19th century word here? What are these? See, there, you've got you've got yeah, Lee exactly. Learned professions. Um, if um, uh, any time in a 19th century British novel you talk about a professional person. You're talking about somebody who is in one of four professions. There are only four professions. Okay, there are many trades that you can be in. Remember, uh, 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 Pride and Prejudice fans, how Mr. Gardner, uh, Elizabeth Bennet's uncle, is in trade. He's not a professional man. We 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 would uh, we use the word professional in a much more broad and ambiguous way. Um, they use the word professional very narrowly. Um, you can have a business. You can be in trade. Doesn't make you a professional. You are a professional if you are a lawyer, a doctor, uh, uh, in the church, or in the army. Those are the only four professions. The Navy is not a profession. Navy, the Navy is not nearly as socially respectable. Anybody could, be, could go to sea. Uh, I, the, the Navy will take any uh, scum off the street. In fact, occasionally they'll drag people off the street onto ships. And you can rise through pure merit in the Navy. This is, that's not a good thing, socially speaking, because it means that sometimes you will get people coming back into society after having made their fortune at sea, because you can make yourself rich by capturing uh, wealthy prizes. You know, you capture a certain number of French and Spanish ships uh, and bring them home, you can make yourself wealthy. Uh, so there were a, a whole bunch of, uh, you know, in, in the... Over the course of the, of the, uh, the, the 19th century, many jumped-up gentlemen gentlemen uh, who become wealthy and try to establish themselves in society after careers in the Navy um, when they, of course, were nothing by birth. Um, 
the army, you had to purchase your commission. You needed money to be an officer in the army. It was much harder to uh, progress in the army through pure merit, like you could in, you could at sea. So anyway, okay. Um, there are four learned. There are four professions. Mister Norrell is plainly, explicitly classing magician among the professions. He's not claiming aristocracy, right? He's not saying. By being a magician, I obviously deserve to uh, be with the peers, right? You know, like, you know, there's like the, you know, the barons, the dukes, and the magicians. He's not claiming that, right? It doesn't make him aristocracy. But it puts him way above those who are merely in trade, right? It puts him among the professional men are respectable, not quite as respectable as landed gentry with who don't have to have a profession, but it's perfectly acceptable for a gentleman that is, you know, say the son of a baronet or something, uh, especially second sons. Uh, the second sons of the landed gentry very often went into one of the professions. Perfectly socially respectable thing to do. Um, and Nancy, you're absolutely right. Mr. Norrell is a gentleman. He has his own property. He is a he is a member of the landed gentry class, uh, so it's sort of not surprising. But in a sense, it's almost as if. And again, you can see, you know, Nancy. I come back to the point you were making about the church. Um, oh no, sorry, Kristen. That was you that was making the the point about the uh, the uh, his relationship with the church. Um, that uh, he sort of sees himself as sort of being humble. I think in this statement. Right, um, no less than law, and a great deal more so than medicine. Right, he he is ranking himself among the among the professions, but that that's as low. Law is as low as he's willing to go. He's willing to confess. Okay, it's okay if people see me as the peer of lawyers. Right, um, not of not of doctors certainly, not of physicians, um, and uh, uh, and and obviously above others. So um, he is. He has a very particular... Now, now, but notice, we can already see in this one paragraph that Mr. Norrell and the London public are not on the same page, right? They're all thinking, freak show, fun. Um, and he is thinking, august member of society, right? highly esteemed, respected individual to whom, you know, whom people will look, will look up to. Okay, um... Let's uh, another example. This is uh, Mr. Drawlight uh, telling his stories to try to placate the social circles of London who are impatient to see Mr. Norrell finally perform magic already. I mean, all this, you know, there was this newspaper story and there's been all this hubbub about how he's brought magic back and he's not done anything, right? He has never, con- he's never, do you remember the things they all want him to do? Does anybody recall the references to the to the kinds of things that people are... Remember, we, we, we get it in some of the overheard conversations at that first party that Mr. Norrell shows up at. Do you remember the kinds of things that, that they expect from Mr. Norrell? Does anybody recall any examples? What are the things... Again, not the things that he does, not the things that he talks about. The things that he... Um, the things that they expect him to do. Remember, one of them, for instance, is to curse people. Right? They talk about no one has been cursed. Right? As if they're really disappointed. Remember, they, they were they were. This is a titillating thing, right? They were hoping to be to be terrified. Nobody got cursed. Right? 
Um, they ex- yes, Kristen, they expected trances, right? They expected him to be going about in a trance, hopefully to be dressed in some kind of mystic robe or other, right? We were told that that's one of the things they expect in that on, on that first day. Um, flashing lights, uh, something, you know, visually sparkly. Kristen, probably a pointy hat. There, I don't remember if they mention a pointy hat, but I, I do think a pointy hat is implied uh, in their sartorial expectations of Mr. Norrell before they first meet him. Um, so we see, these are some examples that we get of the kind of magic that we're told they expect. Draw Light's uh, fictitious story here, when he's trying to placate them um, by telling them an example of the magic that Mr. Norrell does. All they have is Mr. Uh, Draw Light's wholly invented stories uh, in order to... Um, try to continue to keep them excited about the magician, which is, of course, what, what Drawlight is trying to do. So here's Drawlight's version. <clears throat> oh, madam, cried Drawlight, what can he not do? Why, it was only a winter or so ago that in York, which, as you may know, madam, is Mr. Norrell's native city, a great storm came out of the north and blew everybody's washing into the mud and snow. And so the alderman, thinking to spare the ladies of the town the labor of washing everything again, applied to Mr. Norrell and he sent a troop of fairies to wash it all anew, and all the holes in people's shirts and nightcaps and petticoats were mended, and all the frayed edges were made whole and good again, and everybody said that they had never seen such a dazzling whiteness in all their days. This particular story became very popular, and raised Mr. Norrell in everyone's estimation for several weeks that summer, and consequently, when Mr. Norrell spoke, as he sometimes did, of modern magic, most of his audience supposed that this was the sort of thing he must mean. Delightful, huh? Delightful. Now, the key here, we are led to understand that Mr. Drawlight, you know, the, my subtitle of the previous um, slide was uh, was about Mr. Draw, uh, Mr. Norrell mistaking his audience. Mr. Drawlight does not mistake his audience, right? Um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Drawlight knows his audience, and he knows uh, uh, what they're expecting, Right. So let's look at this. I think, in its way, therefore, although it's indirect, right? It's not people spontaneously saying what they want to see from Mr. Norrell. It's Mr. Drawlight giving them what they clearly want to hear. Right. So let's look at what is the picture of English magic that Mr. Drawlight is inventing in order to please the people and appeal to their preconceptions and pre and uh, and to positively dispose them towards Mr. Norrell. What do we see in his description. What are the elements of English magic as we get it from Mr. Drawlight here in this in this scene? Uh, Carita Good. Uh, uh, it, it, makes him, it makes Mr. Norrell sound very valiant, or very gallant, sorry, not, not valiant, but gallant, saving ladies uh, from laundry, absolutely. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of, uh, a, a kind of courtesy here, right? Um, Mr. Norrell is willing to go out of his way to, uh, to help the ladies of, of York in distress, right? Very chivalrous of Mr. Norrell. That's, that's kind of lovely, right? So we sort of attaching him to uh, these sort of uh, 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 traditional values of courtesy, right? Okay, okay. Um, Ellen, great. Ellen Clegg says, solutions to practical problems. Absolutely. So not just flashes and bangs and trances, right? But no, no, no. Mr. Norrell's magic transcends that. This is not just another street magician. This is not like Vinculus, uh, you know, on the, with his yellow curtain. I love how all the magicians have a yellow curtain. I wonder where the yellow curtain came from. But anyway, um, uh, this is not like those street magicians with a yellow curtain. He can affect practical things. 
Right, um, and so this is this is what this is what we expect. Uh, this is what uh, we are hoping to see. Um, so good, it, it will have a, it will have a practical good. Also, notice it's a pra- it's a solution to practical problems at the um, at the behest of the town officials. Right, of the it's the aldermen of York who come to Mister Norrell and uh, implore him on behalf of the ladies of York. And he steps in and serves the common wheel through his magic, right? So again, this is so. Mister Drawlight has, you know, he knows what Mister Norrell wants, right? He says he wants to make himself useful. Mister Drawlight assumes this must be the kind of thing, right? Um, so he puts him in that role, um, but um, um, yeah, yeah, good and uh, and absolutely. John Moline says it's like a supernatural version of uh, of sort of the noble life. Yeah, absolutely, certainly that uh, a, a noble impulse. Um, and of course, uh, several of you have pointed out um, this is uh, um, it's also all about fairies, right? You know, there's there's uh, there's on the one hand the magic is th- that the magic is connected with fairies seems to be something that everybody, including Mr. Drawlight, takes for granted. The connection between fairies and English magic does seem to be um, uh, fairly uh, well-established. We saw it first in the Society of Learned Magicians of York, right? Remember how as soon as they hear the bells ringing and they're waiting for magic to happen, they all start thinking about fairies and being afraid that they're going to be somewhat improbably, as the narrator tartly remarks, um, abducted by fairies, right? This, I think, is also part of why the ladies uh, associated being terrified with seeing magic, right? Because if you're seeing magic, that means you're seeing some kind of fairy magic. There's, there's like, probably going to be... He probably has fairy servants, all the great Orient magicians had fairy servants. So Mr. this Mr. Norrell probably has fairy servants, and so you'll be seeing fairy magic and fairies abduct beautiful young ladies, right? So the young ladies are all like, ooh, living on the edge, right? It's one of the things that's so sort of enticing and titillating about it. Um, so yeah, they also, including Drawlight. Drawlight assumes also that there's this intrinsic connection between fairies and English magic. But, as several of you are also pointing out, it's not just a connection to fairies, but Drawlight is drawing this very domesticated, very toned-down version of fairy magic. Um, the kinds of fairies, you know, like the presumably we people who come out and mend clothes and uh, and uh, uh, clean them to a dazzling whiteness, these don't sound like the kind of fairies uh, that are going to uh, abduct you and haul you off to their castles in fairy. Um, uh, yeah, you're right, uh, Janice, uh, that fairies are not a safe race, and everybody has heard those stories, right? Again, the, as soon as the bells start ringing, the learned society are all like, oh, fairies, they're coming, right? But everybody knows this. But like, Mr. Drawlight seems to want to, if anything, to want to act against that, right? Oh, no, no, yes. Oh, of course he uses, I mean, gives a given, he uses fairies, right? But they're just helpful little fairies who clean linen, Right? That's what that that's the kind of he's all he's safe. Right. So Mr. Norrell is powerful, he's gallant, he is civic minded, and he's perfectly safe. Right? These seem to be some of the messages that he's giving uh, about uh you know, draw light is uh, is very um 
Uh, exactly, Sarah King, just like the fairies who mend your shoes. It's uh, uh, very much, very much like that. Um, Drawlight, Drawlight knows what he's doing, right? He's not going to steer you wrong. Um, and yes, Michael, uh, you're absolutely right that uh, this image of these laundering, these little laundry spirits, uh, and the man with the thistle-down hair. The contrast is, uh, uh, I agree with you, extremely stark. Um, these are not the only views of English magic, though. Um, there is some uh, memory of magic in a different, sort of a different tradition, a different traditional understanding of, uh, of English magic. Um, I love uh, Captain Harcourt Bruce. Um, here's... Uh, yeah, you're right, Kirsten. Of course, the, the contrast is both stark and funny. I completely agree with you. Um, uh, this, here's uh, Captain Harcourt Bruce's disappointment upon meeting... Mr. Norrell. Captain Harcourt Bruce was not only dashing, handsome, and brave, he was also rather romantic. The appearance, the reappearance of magic in England thrilled him immensely. He was a great reader of the more exciting sort of history, and his head was full of ancient battles in which the English were outnumbered by the French and doomed to die, when all at once would be heard the sound of strange, unearthly music, and upon a hilltop would appear the Raven King in his tall black helmet with its mantling of raven feathers streaming in the wind, and he would gallop down the hillside on his tall black horse with a hundred human knights and a hundred fairy knights at his back, and he would defeat the French by magic. That was Captain Harcourt Bruce's idea of a magician. That was the sort of thing which he now expected to see reproduced on every battlefield on the continent. So when he saw Mr. Norrell in his drawing room in Hanover Square, and after he had sat and watched Mr. Norrell peevishly complain to his footman, first that the cream in his tea was too creamy, and next that it was too watery, well... I shall not surprise you when I say he was somewhat disappointed. <laughs> In fact, he was so downcast by the whole undertaking that Admiral Paycock, a bluff old gentleman, felt rather sorry for him and only had the heart to laugh at him and tease him very moderately about it. Um, yes, yes. Uh, Neil, uh, your understatement is, uh, is as uh, distinct as Susanna Clark's own when you say that Mr. Norrell is not a man of action. No, no, man of action. Uh, Mr. Minoro is not a man of action in any sense. Um, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I love that image of him. <laughs> the, 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 the delightful juxtaposition of the Raven King charging into battle with Mr. Norrell peevishly complaining that the cream in his tea was too creamy is <laughs> just... I just love that passage. But it's a fascinating view, isn't it? Of this is a, a very different, but I think also very important view of what English magic is, right, and what English magic means. Um, yeah, Michael, that's a great observation. Michael says everyone expects magic to match their own expectations: mundane chores for regular people, martial magic for soldiers, etc. Yeah, there is a sense in which English magic is is well, it's for England and it's for Englishmen, right? And it does seem to kind of meet them where they are, in a sense. And the tradition of English magic that we read, I mean, even the fact, uh, even the names, right? Ralph Stokesy, right? That's not an aristocratic name. It's not a name like Harcourt Bruce, for instance. Um, the names of the magicians, the great magicians, suggest they were not noble, necessarily. Um, 
there is a way in which the tr- the traditional history of English magic seems to be a, a, a comparatively democratic one. Um, or if it is aris- uh, aristocratic, it's aristocratic on somewhat different principles uh, from the mainline social um, uh, aristocracy. But um, but anyway, we do see these different... So, so there, again, there is a sense in which English magic is for all Englishmen, um, and that there was there is something... There's something to appeal to all Englishmen in English magic. So, to, uh, Michael, I think that that's a really, that's a really important um, observation. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, interesting. Kristen Thompson asks, don't most people see magic as a bit of a wish fulfillment? Well... To me, that's kind of the question, though. Um, that is, and again, it's one of the things that I think Susanna Clark has done so fascinatingly in this story, is I'm fascinated by how she withholds information from us, right? She's been talking about magic and English magic from literally the first page, the first paragraph of the book, and yet she only she leaves us to sort of make assumptions about it. Um, she doesn't really explain when it's happening, how it's happening, what it really is, how it really works. Um, she carries on assuming that we already know, because everybody knows, right? Um, and yet we are sort of to discover. So, Kristen, to me, that was always sort of the question. Um, we do see these different... You know, we have, again, the, the sort of the... Uh, um, when Mr. Drawlight is talking to a group of ladies, he emphasizes the gallantry to the ladies and these sort of domestic mag- this domestic magic. This very martial uh, uh, character is thinking about uh, military magic. But, um, but my question is, are they right? Or are they wrong? I, I mean, is it is it wish fulfillment? Does it act? Would it actually fulfill? I mean. That's not to say that Mr. Norrell, right? Mr. Norrell clearly doesn't fulfill the wishes of Captain Harcourt Bruce. But is that Mr. Norrell's fault? Or does, I mean, is Captain Harcourt Bruce wrong? Was the Raven King like that, for instance? Um, is that? Maybe that's real English magic, and Mr. Norrell, with his too creamy cream, is not real English magic, right? Um, that seems possible. And that, to me, is one of the really fascinating things from this. Like, who's right about magic? It's a question that Mr. Norrell insists we ask, because he's ask- not asking it. You know, Mr. Norrell knows the answer to that question, right? Mr. Norrell is continuously asserting, no, 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 there is a, a definition of English magic. Uh, I am privy to the definition of, of English magic, and you are not. But what is our relationship with that as readers meant to be? Um, because, of course, it's impossible for us to deny that Mr. Norrell does know magic and what magic is. Um, so, uh, but, but again, that doesn't necessarily mean that his version of English magic is the only one that there is. Anyway, um, let's, uh, let's keep going. Um, here's that, from that crushing conversation with Sir Walter Pohl when Mr. Norrell first meets him. 
"'You are not at all what I expected, Mr. Norrell,' remarked Sir Walter. "'I have been told you were a practical magician. "'I hope you are not offended, sir. "'It is merely what I was told, "'and I must say that it is a relief to me "'to see that you are nothing of the sort. "'London is plagued with a great number of mock sorcerers "'who trick the people out of their money "'by promising them all sorts of unlikely things. "'I wonder, have you seen Vinculus, "'who has a little booth outside St. Christopher Lestock's? "'He is the worst of them. "'You are a theoretical magician, I imagine?' "'Sir Walter smiled encouragingly. "'But they tell me you have something to ask me, sir.' "'Mr. Norrell begged Mr. Walter's pardon, "'but said that he was indeed a practical magician. "'Sir Walter looked surprised. "'Mr. Norrell hoped very earnestly "'that he would not by this admission "'lose Sir Walter's good opinion. "'No, no, by no means,' murmured Sir Walter politely. "'By the way, I think that Susanna Clark "'has a great genius for indirect conversation. "'I absolutely love it when she intersperses direct uh, quotation with uh, those kinds of comments um, Mr. Norrell hoped very earnestly that he would not by this admission lose it. Uh, when she, when she, I, I, the way that she, ver- rather than just kind of going back and forth and relating the whole conversation uh, the w- and the way that she's able to sort of put these sort of ironic twists um, d- just gorgeously, gorgeously done. Uh, like one of my favorite examples of this, for instance, is um, when uh, we're being told about a conversation between Mr. Norrell and Mr. Drawlight back near the beginning of their of their relationship, and Mr. Norrell says that uh, he does not believe that he is himself qualified. Uh, you know, that he's really truly qualified uh, to bring magic back into into modern England. And then, rather than quote uh, Mr. Drawlight's doubtless long and flowery response, uh, Clark just you know, Clark's narrator just says. Uh, uh, Mr. Drawlight was surprised to hear it, <laughs> right? Um, it's, it's, it, I think, so understated, so very, very well done. Um, what do we learn here? What do we learn here? From, Mr., from Sir Walter Pohl, we're getting a different perspective, right? This is not the young ladies who hoped to be terrified. This is not the domestic ladies... Um, who, although they probably don't wash many of their own linens, yet doubtless would be very pleased to see their linens returned to them in the state described by Mr. Drawlight, right? Um, And uh, this is not uh, Captain Harcourt Bruce, right? What do we see from Sir Walter Paul? What do we get in this in this passage? Good, Emily. This this uh, Emily Metcalf is exactly right. He absolutely equates practical magicians with. Uh, quackery, to use your delightful word, Emily. Um, absolutely, practicality equals quackery. Um, to be a practical magician is to be a mock sorcerer, right? To be a street performer, to be a mountebank. He's one of those wonderful words, um, uh, which makes it, James, uh, as James Leback says, certainly a very low class affair. Very low class affair. I mean. Street performer, that's low class indeed, right? Um, uh, absolutely, absolutely. There's, there's, and Mick, you're right, there's major social labels, right? To be a theoretical magician. And notice Sir Walter's conclusion that he's a theoretical magician is a perfectly, pl- that, that's what he looks like, right? Notice even what this shows us about appearances, right? There, is m- there are many comments made about the fact that Mr. Norrell does not look like what people expect a magician to look like. Um, but wait a second. Why is this? Why? Why is it 
that people exp- what I'm wanting to do is kind of dig a little deeper into the chicken and the egg question, right? Yes, you can say, Mr. Uh, Sir Walter, but I will keep almost calling him Mr. Pole, which would be a terrible insult. <clears throat> Sir Walter um, associates practical magicians with street performers. It's, 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 it's easy enough to say. He, he associates that because that's what he sees when walking around the streets of London. He sees these street magicians, not on every street corner, but all over the place. So that's what he associates with practical magic. But I, 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 again, I think there's a chicken and egg issue here, right? I want to go back one step further. Why is it that that is the particular way in which practical magicians have chosen to manifest themselves? That is, if you are going to set yourself up in 1805, you know, 1807, if you're going to set yourself up in 1805 in Susanna Clark's world as a practical magician in London, why is it that your first move is to get a yellow curtain? I still don't understand the yellow curtains. Anybody who can explain the yellow curtains to me, I'd be happy. Um, get yourself a yellow curtain and go on the street corner and perform, right? Why is that what a magician does? Why does nobody do what Mr. Norrell did? Right and say, okay, I'm going to make out that I'm a practical magician. I'm going to set up shop like a lawyer, right? I'm going to I'm going to pretend I'm going to pretend to be a professional man. Of course, that takes money, so it's harder for a beggar to do that. Like it's harder for a beggar in a pickpocket to set up as a professional than it is for him to set up as a street performer. Understood. But again, that's um, they're still they're still playing to an expectation, right? Um. Vinculus looks just like what a magician is supposed to look like. And not just because, I, and I, I would argue, not just because he, you know, is what they're most used to. Again, I think it goes beyond that. Um, looking back past that, what do they expect what do English people seem to expect magicians to look like? And I think I've my I've theory about this. I think there's this my theory is that there's a simple answer to this question. I think that the people of England expect a magician to look like the Raven King. That the Raven King is the iconic magician. That's what they expect him to look like. Vinculus is accepted as a magician, because he looks like the Raven King. Now, clearly, Captain Harcourt, Bruce's version of the Raven King, is this is the Raven King in fancy dress, right? Um, when he is in his uh, in his in his military bearing, but this sort of wild, unkempt, natural. Why is it that they all look like that? Why is it they all dress like that? Why did they expect a robe and trances and crazy talk? It's the Raven King. I'm convinced that it's about the Raven King. Um, that he is their icon, and that Vinculus and the other magicians are doing what they're doing because they are doing... Remember Mr. Norrell says that. When Mr. Norrell's being confronted, when Vinculus pops up at Mr. Norrell's house, Mr. Norrell's like, oh, yes, of course, prophecies of the Raven King, right? How original. Everybody does that. The fact that Mr. Norrell says, you know, all of you charlatan street magician mountebanks... Um, you guys all do the Raven King thing, right? That really suggests to me that that's the, um, uh, that's the, yeah, as Philip Lord says, the Raven King is obviously eccentric. 
Yes. Yes. Uh, well, Philip, I think that's the second biggest understatement. I think still Neil Ottenstein's uh, uh, statement that Mr. Norrell is not a man of action still wins the understatement of the day award. But uh, Philip Lord, the Raven King is eccentric, is a close second uh, in the understatement of the day for, for the understatement of the day award. The the runner up. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so very good. Um Okay, um, so again, so and thinking about their expectations, this is clearly one of the things that they are, um, that they expect, what they expect to see. But now back to Sir Walter, right? Sir Walter has the same expectation, but that is not respectable, right? Um, if he is, uh, he's obvious, and it's not just that he's saying, I hope you're not a practical magician. That's not how Sir Walter talks, right? He he sees him, he meets him, and he says, "Oh, whew, I see that you're not a practical magician." You know, when I was told that Mister Norrell, the magician, wanted an appointment with me, I was sort of half expecting this guy who looked like Vincuous to show up, right? But whew, oh, I can see. Notice he doesn't say, "I can see you're not that kind of practical magician." No, he says, "I see you're not a. Pra- you, you're obviously a theoretical magician. You are a bookish scholar." So plainly, you've got theoretical magician written all over you. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, then, of course, uh, he uh, pulls out the rug. Mr. Norrell, said Sir Walter, I cannot claim to understand what this help that you offer us. Oh, as to particulars, Mr. Norrell said, I know as little of warfare as the generals and the admirals do of magic, and yet... But whatever it is, continued Sir Walter, I am sorry to say that it will not do. Magical magic is not respectable, sir. It is not. It is not, Sir Walter, search for a word serious. Okay, now let's pause here for a second. What is the mistake that Mr. Norrell made in this conversation at that point, and why did he make it? Do you see? What's his mistake? I cannot claim to understand what this help that you offer us what what this help is that you offer us. Notice that Mr. Norrell has never come with suggestions, right? Um, he has ne- he doesn't come, he, he hasn't sent to the Prime Minister, nor has he uh, come to Sir Walter Pole with any concrete suggestions. Why? What does that show about Mr. Norrell and about his assumptions? Do you see? See what I mean by that? What does that show us about Mr. Norrell's assumption? Mick says he lacks imagination. I certainly agree with that, um, that he does lack imagination. He seems not uh, uh, able to come up with ideas entirely on his own. Uh, Kay, yes, that they will come to him. He reveals that to draw it. He's like, I don't... He has to conclude um, that the, 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 the ministers, right, the prime minister... The, that they um, they obviously haven't heard of him, right? Clearly. Because if they had, they'd have already approached him. And, you know, with suggestions of, you know, uh, requests even. Probably not begging right away, you know, but, but surely they would have come to him with respectful requests for things that he could do by magic, right? That assumption is is 
plain to be seen here. As to particulars, I know as little as warfare as the generals and the admirals do of magic, and yet, right, you know, he's saying, I, I, I don't know, I was, of course, I'm assuming the generals and the admirals are going to come and say, just, you know, they'll fill out their requests for what they want, and, you know, I'll do what I can, and, uh, you know, said so that's, that's what he's expecting, right? Um, and he's completely flabbergasted by Sir Walter's actual point of view. Again, because this is where the crisis comes with the gap between everybody else's perceptions of magic and assumptions about magic and um, Mr. Norrell's assumptions about magic. His assumption that a magician would be viewed as a professional person, a professional person to be consulted, like a physician or a lawyer would be consulted, um, is wrong. Flatly wrong. There are two modes in which magicians can be understood, uh, and in ne- neither one of them fits the sort of respectable professional man that Mr. Norrell fancies himself, and uh, f- you know for the role that he imagines uh, he is uh, he is he is going to be. Um, yeah, Kristen, exactly. He is extremely full of himself. Um, uh, uh, Norrell is enormously conceited. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, Nick. Yeah, he's waiting for the government to contact him. Or he's just gotten tired of waiting and decided he has to take matters into his own hands. Which means, notice, that the implication there is that Mr. Norrell, in coming to Sir Walter Pole, sees himself not as the beggar, but he's condescending to Sir Walter Pole, right? I expected you to come to me, but it's okay. I can be gracious. I'll come to you. Right with the offer of my services. No, 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 no. Don't thank me. Right, it's fine. It's all my civic duty after all. I wish to do my part for England, like any other Englishman. Right. That that seems to be Mister Norrell's perspective. And then here, Mister Walter, uh, Sir Walter Pole, says, "It's not respectable, and it's not serious." Ooh, ooh. And he has to reach for that word. Right. It's not. Serious. The government cannot meddle with such things. Even this innocent little chat that you and I have had today is likely to cause us a little embarrassment when you're, when people get to hear of it. Frankly, Mr. Norrell, had I understood better what you were intending to purpose today, I would not have agreed to meet with you. Oh, ouch. Sir Walter's manner as he said all this was far from unkind. But, oh, poor Mr. Norrell! To be told that magic was not serious was a very heavy blow. To find himself classed with the dream-ditches and the vinculuses of this world was a crushing one. In vain he protested that he had long thought long and hard about how to make magic respected once more. In vain he offered to show Sir Walter a long list of recommendations concerning the regulation of magic in England. Sir Walter did not wish to see them. He shook his head and smiled, but all he said was, I am afraid, Mr. Norrell, that I can do nothing for you. Yeah, James, you're right that he tries to get back to the script when things go off the script. But, James, notice what he does. Notice how he does that. And again, what this shows us about Mr. Norrell's perspective on magic. What is Mr. Norrell's relationship with English magic? I said before that he was mistaking his audience, right? Um, I'm not 100% sure that's technically true. Is Mr. Norrell ignorant of the outlook on the perception of magic 
that is widespread in England. Is he, in fact, ignorant of that? I would say no. He knows about the dream ditches and the vincuuses of the world. He knows about that. Again, in his conversation with Vincius, he's like, I have heard this a hundred times, right? Philip, exactly. He wants to make it respectable once more. Sarah Lagarde making the same point. He wants to make it respectable. That does show. He knows it's not respectable now, but he's respectable. The thing that... that so it's not, in a sense, that he's saying Sir Walter is wrong about magic or about the other magicians, Right? Of course, he's exactly right to look down on Vincuous the way that he does. He would speak of Vincuous and of Dream Ditch, right? The one, the, um, uh, Mrs., oh, what's her name? Winter, Winter Bloom? I'm blanking. Is it Winter Bloom? What's the name of the, the family that he's marrying into? Winter, Winter, please somebody remind me what the name is. I'm totally blanking on it. Anyway, um, uh, she, his future mother in law, uh, tells this winter town. Thank you, winter 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 town. Thank you. Um, okay, um, Mrs. Wintertown says that uh, she tells the story about Dream Ditch, this magician uh, employed by her family in her youth, um, who was clearly not a respectable person either. He was also clearly a mountebank like Vincuous, um, just one who had managed to score a a a, a good place, right? Um, Okay, so he recognizes this. Mr. Norrell also despises practical magic, if that's what practical magic means. He's trying to redefine it, right? He's trying to differentiate between real practical magicians and those others who have called themselves practical magicians, right? He is setting himself in a class of his own. He's not trying to bring all of English magic, in a sense, up with him, not what everybody else thinks of as English magic, right? No, 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 no. He's going to redefine English magic. He is establishing a wholly new category. You've got the theoretical, you've got the York Society over here, you've got the vincuuses and dream ditches over here, and you have Mr. Norrell alone over here, right? And that's what Sir Walter has missed. Sir Walter's tragic mistake, from Mr. Norrell's point of view, is that he has failed to understand that Mr. Norrell is in a class completely on his own. Remember, we saw that from his first reaction. Oh, I put you in one category at first, but now I see you're in the other category. And so when Mr. Norrell says, no, 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 I am a practical magician, then Sir Walter will hear nothing of it. And yes, John Moline, exactly. Um, uh, Mr. Norrell is trying to distance himself from old Raven King style of magic. That seems to be part and parcel. with it. That's to be bound up in both directions with his separating himself from the Raven King. I say in both directions. He separates himself from Vincuous et al., in part because they are looking back to the tradition of the Raven King, which he wishes to separate himself from, but he's also separating himself from the traditions of the Raven King because they have led to the Vincuuses of the world. Again, I think the chicken and egg thing goes both ways, right? Um, But for both reasons, he wants nothing to do with that, and he... Um, is trying to, again, by establishing himself as a professional man, by uh, by buying a house in Hanover Square, he is showing he doesn't fit in those categories and, and that the general public is going to have to redefine him. Um, yeah, yeah. And Kay, you're right that he is wrong to think that 
society is just going to come along with him, right? That they're going to abandon their former views, that they're just going to, you know, he just has to declare himself and they're going to come falling over themselves uh, to, uh, to accept his definitions. Because you're right, Kay, to emphasize the point that I also found most striking in that second paragraph. You'd think, confronted with the rejection that Sir Walter Pole has just given, right? Magic is not respectable and it's not serious. Um, in vain he protested long and hard about what? What is he protesting about? That he's thought how to make it respected once more. Okay. What does he try to show him? You'd think it would be something like show him how through magic he can help the the English cause in the war with Napoleon, right? Maybe, no. No, he's not actually thought about that. Um, what does he show him? What uh, Show him. It suggests he actually has it, like, with him. That he's carrying in his pocket a written-out list of recommendations concerning the regulation of magic in England. No, no, no. See how distant I am from the vinculuses of the world? In fact, look, I have this whole scheme for, for uh, uh, putting them all on trial as frauds. We know he wants... We, we will learn later how passionately uh, uh, Mr. Norrell wants to revive the traditional uh, magical legal processes of England. Um, so this is... The, again, this is how he is sort of defining himself, and that's really fascinating. Again, he's, he doesn't show anything positive about himself. He still assumes that everyone's going to see the positives in him, Right? All he has to do is show the negatives about other people. Oh, yes, yes, yes. They're horrible, aren't they? But obviously, it's a given that I'm different, and that when you see me and you hear about me coming to London, you're going to, you know, obviously just come right over. You're right, John. It should be vinculi. Absolutely. I apologize. Um, uh, very good. Um, okay. Good. Um and Kristen makes a good counterpoint, though. Uh, why shouldn't he think that society would fall all over him? Drawlight and Lascelles did. Certainly, Drawlight does. Absolutely. And we see how susceptible he is to flattery, right? And one of the reasons he's susceptible to flattery is that it, it, that's his wish fulfillment, right? Um, Mr. Drawlight succeeds so spectacularly with Mr. Norrell because he gives him exactly what he wants, hopes for, and expects, Right? Um, yeah, very good. Um, okay. And yeah, Kristen, you're right that, uh, uh, Clark actually does mention magical law earlier on about, remember how the solicitor in York doesn't really know the details about magical law, but trusts that the learned society of uh, York magicians does. Um, yeah, so we already have that concept in mind. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see Mr. Norrell, you know, invoking it again. Um, so, given an opportunity, after the stupendous feat, after he brings uh, Miss Wintertown, soon to be uh, uh, Lady Pole, back from the dead, uh, and his reputation as something quite extraordinary and certainly far beyond, 
I keep being tempted to use the phrase beyond the pale, which, of, of course, uh, given the fact that Christopher Pale is one of the great Orient magicians, is sort of a particularly weighted phrase in uh, the context of this book. But anyway, um, quite uh, beyond the capabilities of the vinculi of the world. Um, Martin Pale, sorry. Yeah, so look at that. How, how shameful. Martin Pale, you're completely right, Michael. Uh, anyway. Um, so anyhow, uh, it's it, we, he's he's plainly distinguished himself. He has accomplished what he wanted. He has set himself in a class by himself, and he is making English magic more respectable again. So what does he do? As soon as he gets his periodical, right? As soon as he gets a as soon as he gets a a a, a, a mouthpiece, right? As soon as he gets a uh, an instrument with which he can you know through which he can trumpet his own views and redefine English magic. There's not much to interest the serious student of magic in the early issues, that is, of the Friends of English Magic. And the only entertainment to be got from them is contained in several articles in which Portishead attacks on Mr. Norrell's behalf gentlemen magicians, lady magicians, street magicians, vagabond magicians, child prodigy magicians, the Learned Society of York magicians, the Learned Society of Manchester magicians, Learned Societies of Magicians in general, and any other magicians whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely, Karita. He tears he tears other people down. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is for Mister Noel. This is what it's all about. Again, what is he carrying in his in his pocket? Again, he's not 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 an appeal. He's not he's not done what you're supposed to do when you go to an important interview, right? Have prepared a bunch of things that the other person might be interested in, right? Maybe have some literature to leave with him, right? No, 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 no. He has a list of the rules that he hopes to to get past in order to restrict the activities of other magicians, right? That is his real passion. His real passion is not necessarily self-promotion. He is interested in self-promotion, but it's Strawlight and the Cells who are mostly interested in the promo- in self-promotion through promotion of Mr. Norrell, right? Mr. Norrell is kind of interested in self-promotion, but he is much more interested in the restriction of other people. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so good, uh, John Moline. He wants to both define and regulate English magic. Isn't that respectable? Right? English magic is not some wild thing, right? It's not some native strand. It's not some connection to the earth. It's not anything to do with fairies. It is a scholarly, and be to be regulated and uh, uh, and and made respectable by through exclusion, right? No undesirable people are to be permitted. Um, uh, and what's the list of und- undesirable people who are not meant to be performing magic? <laughs> um, children the poor, like Vincuous, you know, beggars, um, servants, women, gentlemen, everybody who's not Mr. Norrell, really, ultimately, right? Um, yeah, it's absolutely everybody but him is to be, uh, um, 
Uh, yeah, yeah. See, Claudia, exactly. Claudia says, you know, Mr. Norrell restricts everyone else, uh, you know, so there'll be a bigger share of the praise for him and his brand of magic. It's true, and he's he's very vain. He loves to hear himself praised. He is, again, he's comically susceptible to flattery. Um, I mean, draw light can just wrap him around his fingers anytime he wants to because draw light is a wonderful flatterer, right? Um, but it's not just, I think, it's not just about self-promotion. Mr. Norrell is not greedy. He considers himself, he believes himself to be sacrificing for the cause of English magic. And I think that he generally believes that. Um, so, And that's the, 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 the sort of the complicated thing that I think is important. If we, if we sort of accept or embrace a view of Mr. Norrell, which only sees him as vain and stuck up and greedy for attention and desiring to keep everybody else, down, you know, to promote himself at the expense of everyone else. All those things are, of course, perfectly true, but it's not the whole story. He genuinely wants to serve England, and he genuinely wants to serve the cause of modern magic. Um, not just for self-promotion. Again, you get, and I think we can see this. Um, this is one of the things that I find so interesting about the pairing of Lascelles and Drawlight with Mr. Norrell. In Lascelles and Drawlight, we get two people who are unquestionably, uncomplicatedly self-promoting. Right? They are absolutely in it for themselves. They are see, they are they are shamelessly profiteering off the situation. The fact that Mr. Norrell is not in line with them, right? That he has to be brought around to doing things. Not, but you know, you can say they're manipulating him for their own good, not for his. Yeah, sure. But again, it's but it's not the way he thinks. He doesn't think like them. Um, he really believes that he is sacrificing himself for these greater causes. Um, and yeah, Janice Hopper, uh, that's a great point. Norrell thinks he's the only one who can do magic correctly. Yes. Yes. And that's not his fault. That doesn't make him arrogant, right? I mean, if you brag all the time that you're the best and the smartest, well, you know, it's only boasting if it's not true, right? <laughs> I mean, Mr. Norrell does know better than everybody else what magic should be, right? And the thing is, it's hard to contradict that. Vinculus is a fraud. The street magicians are ma- they're, 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 they're con artists. He's right to want to regulate them. He's absolutely correct to say that is not the real tradition of English magic. It isn't. It isn't. Does he know more than anybody else about magic? Of course he does. He has all the books. There is no one else alive who knows more about magic than Mr. Norrell. Absolutely. If there is anybody in England who's going to define what magic is, it's Mr. Norrell, right? Right? Um, I mean, of course, you can see that I'm not being completely sincere here, but 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 I think it's important to rec- to acknowledge that that element is there, right? Mr. Norrell is not; he is not merely absurd. He is not purely ridiculous. Mr. Norrell is ridiculous. And he makes himself ridiculous on many occasions. But he's not purely ridiculous. And that, I think, is to me one of the fascinating things about his character. Um, You know, it's 
hard to like Mr. Norrell as a character in this story, um, and fascinating that we're getting, you know, 150 pages of books so far in which the central hero, Mr. Norrell, is this guy who's really hard to like, right? Um, it's a, it's a, just, it's a fascinating move by Clark, a brave move uh, in her book here. But the one thing that I find that it's, it doesn't exactly redeem him, but keeps me simply from writing him off, is the fact that although he's arrogant, he's also he's also deluded, but he's also kind of has a point. His intentions aren't all bad. In fact, his intentions aren't at all bad. They're good intentions. Anyway, it's just he's a much more complicated character, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, Kristen. Of course, that he has hoarded his books in a dragonish way. Absolutely. Um, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, again, there's no. Um, we can't just praise him for. But but you see, this is what that's what I mean by the complexity of of the situation, right? On the one hand, can we? Does the fact that he knows he knows more about magic than anybody else does that make him into a good or a lovable character? No, no, it does not. Um, because we know that he has a he has done it at the expense of others deliberately. Um, but he's also right. He does know better. You could say what you like about how he got his books. He has them. And he knows magic. And he knows magic better than anybody else. He's right about that. Anyway. Um, uh, let's look at his preparation to do, um, um, to do magic here. When he's confronted by his big opportunity, uh, the death of, la- of uh, the almost Lady Pole. But Mr. Norrell did not appear to hear the comfort his friend was so kind as to give him, and when at last he spoke, his words seemed chiefly addressed to himself, for he sighed deeply and murmured, I never thought to find magic so little regarded here. He paused and then said in a quick, low voice, It is a very dangerous thing to bring someone back from the dead. It has not been done in three hundred years. I could not attempt it. This was rather extraordinary, and Mr. Drawlight and Mr. Lascelles looked round at their friend in some surprise. "'Indeed, sir,' said Mr. Drawlight, "'and no one proposes that you should.' "'Of course I know the form of it,' continued Mr. Norrell, "'as if Drawlight had not spoken. "'But it is precisely the sort of magic that I have set my face against. "'It relies so much upon—it relies so much—that is to say, "'the outcome must be entirely unpredictable, "'quite out of the magician's power to determine. "'No, I shall not attempt it. "'I shall not even think of it.' "'What do we see here? "'Notice.' He is, Nancy says all Norrell's substantive conversations are with himself alone. Of course, he's got nothing other than uh, yes-men and flatterers uh, to talk to, otherwise, other than with Childemus. Um Yeah, good. Neil points out he can't say depends on fairies. Notice he's talking to himself, but even when talking to himself, he's aware that others can hear him. Right? So he still censors himself. It relies so much upon fairies. Is the completion of that sentence that he doesn't want to finish. That is to say, the outcome must be entirely unpredictable. That's the kind of magic that he has set his face against. Fairy magic. 
Um, yeah, and so, John, that is a great point, that unpredictability is tied with fairies here. That's a good thing to remember, I think. Um, and yes, John, it also does imply that when, Mo- when Mr. Norrell says modern magic, one of the implications that he's making, though he's not spelled this out uh, to anybody yet, is not fairy magic. Um, yes, yes, that seems to me perfectly uh, fair. And I agree, uh, Carita, that he is perfectly right to be scared of fairies. He does seem to be scared, uh, and that seems an entirely just and reasonable fear uh, that he has of fairies. And therefore also, you know, so this question of Mr. Norrell and his sort of narrow definition of magic, his insistence that he's... So, so, so but again, you see the implication here? Again, he's not reviving English magic. He's redefining English magic. He's going to bring about a new English magic, which is unlike the old English magic. Um, because the old English magic was very tied to fairies. It's in all the stories. But he has set his face against... that. Not just... I'm bad at that kind of magic, not I don't like that kind of magic, not eh, I'm not a huge fan, no, no, no. I have set my face against that. He has made a decision, not only that he's going to bring back English magic, but that he is going to redefine what English magic means. Not fairies anymore. England, English magic is going to have nothing to do with fairies, and yet, in his need to bring English magic back into repute, he finds himself... Yeah, Philip, that's not respectable, is it? Because it's unpredictable. Um, uh, is one of the reasons why it's not respectable, but... Um, yeah, and Janice, you're right. He doesn't ever... He suppresses the knowledge of fairies. Janice, we can see it even here. He doesn't even want to allude to them. He doesn't want to even talk about it. And this is why, of course, he insists on absolute privacy when he goes in to see Miss Wintertown, right? The corpse of Miss Wintertown, I should say, because he's going to summon and talk to a fairy, and he does not want anyone to see or to know that. So even after the fact, he is going to conceal that a fairy was involved, even after he decides to do it. Um... Yeah, good, good. Now, Carita, thank you, Carita, for speaking up for Mr. Norrell here. Carita says, a sympathetic take on Norrell might point out that he cares so deeply about his cause that he's willing to face something that he's afraid of and deplores. Yeah, yeah, he is. He is. He's willing to do that for the greater good. Um, For Sir Walter and Lady Pole's greater good? Well, yes, but really, the cause of modern magic. Right? And notice, I never thought to find magic so little regarded here. He recognizes that he needs to raise the reputation of magic, and performing something extravagant seems sort of the way. Um, interesting. Yeah, Chris, I, I think that's a great way to think about it, Chris. Chris Swank says it's a conflict between Dark Age magic and Enlightenment magic, superstition versus scientific magic. Because you're right, Chris, um, the Golden Age is the Middle Ages, right? The medieval era is the golden age of English magic. Um, the Raven King is a medieval... How long has he been away? How long has it been since the Raven King ha- has been gone? Does anybody remember? What are the, Raven's King's, the Raven King's dates? When did he leave? 300 years, Chris. Absolutely, you got it. 300 years. I think that's what he's alluding to when he says it's not been done in 300 years. Not since the time of the Raven King has anybody done this kind of magic. 
Um, 300 years ago was? When? What date are we in in the book right now? When did the Raven King leave England? It was early 1500s. Absolutely. Uh, the end of the Golden Age, the end of the Middle Ages, beginning of the Renaissance, right? As we shift towards the Renaissance in England, magic is magic is going, right? We're done with magic. Exactly, Sarah. Like, are we getting towards Henry VIII, right? That's magic is magic is over at that point. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so Chris, back to your larger point. The difference between the Dark Ages and the Enlightenment, right? Um, Mr. Norrell is an Enlightenment magician. Um, he does not think that magic needs to be mystical. It, does, it should not have anything to do with fairies. And fairies are scary, right? They're totally scary. They're unpredictable. Um, I would nominate... Mr. Norrell also here for the understatement of the day award. I still think he comes in third uh, to our other two to to, to uh, John and Neil's uh, statements, but nevertheless, uh, that fairy magic is unpredictable is a major understatement, right? Uh, you do you never can tell what those fairies are going to do, except you can have a, 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 a guess that it might be malicious, um, harmful. Fairies are rough characters. Um, they can be unpredictable and in the worst kind of way. Um, him uh, going on here. There is scarcely any form of magic more dangerous, said Mr. Norrell in a sort of horrified whisper. It is dangerous to the magician and dangerous to the subject. Well, sir, said Drawlight reasonably, I suppose you are the best judge of the danger as it applies to yourself, but the subject, as you term her, is dead. What worse can befall her? Ah, what a pregnant question that is, isn't it? What worse than death can possibly befall Miss Wintertown? Uh, to which the answer, of course, might be, why don't you ask Miss Wintertown that question in six months and see what she says? Drawlight waited for a moment for a reply to this interesting question, but Mr. Norrell made none. Because Mr. Norrell has an answer, he knows, he's read all about it. Right, he knows what a fairy can do to a human being, um, and that it can be, in fact, much worse than death. Um, dying in her youth of a lingering illness is sad, but there are far worse things that can befall a young lady, especially a beautiful young lady like Miss Wintertown, um, and Mr. Norrell knows it. Um, <laughs> yeah, Kristen Thompson says Draw Light hasn't read the right books. Uh, absolutely, no. He's just like the he's just like Eustace uh, in the in in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. No, he's not read the right books. Of course, he's not. Mister Norrell owns them all. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, Nancy says we would never ask that question. What worse can befall her? Um, yeah, yeah. What's the worst that could happen is always a dangerous question. Um, Notice, though, again, the contrast between Mr. Norrell and Drawlight here. Notice Drawlight's perspective all the way through. Drawlight is ignorant. Drawlight is superficial. Drawlight is worldly. Drawlight is is looking at this from a, 
a simple, practical point of view, right? He can't imagine anything worse than death. Well, of course he can't. He's not very imaginative in that way. Notice how he and Lascelles both are completely taken on the hop by Norrell's suggestion. They're both of them... Fle- they're Mr. Norrell's great supporters, been his great advocates in town. Neither one of them can imagine that he is serious at first. Now, draw light quickly. Once he gets that Mr. Norrell is serious, he switches gears right away. Draw light's awesome at that, right? He he can he he has a keen sense of what direction the wind is blowing, and he knows right how to go with it. As soon as he detects Mr. Morrell, Mr. Norrell is seriously contemplating. Um, attempting to resurrect uh, Miss Wintertown. He's all behind it. Thinks it's the best idea he's ever heard. Right? Just the thing, and he immediately goes to try to make it happen as much as possible. But he does. even he doesn't believe at first. Assumes that Mr. Norrell is being ridiculous when he speaks of it. Right? Um... Here's Mr. Norrell and uh, the man with the, with the thistle-down hair. Um, the man with the thistle... I'm going to have a hard time saying his th- saying the word thistle-down. Expect me to stutter over that word many times over the next several months. The man with the thistle-down hair... Can I just call him the fairy? I think I'm just going to call him the fairy, because he's just about the only fairy we meet. Um, uh, okay, so... The fairy, when he meets Mr. Norrell, um, I mean, I love the poetic nature of that, uh, and, and, and therefore I really admire her persistent use of that poetic description, the man with, with the thistle-down hair. Um, but as I said, for the sake of uh, not stuttering all the time, I'm going to not call him that. Um, uh, and yeah, John, I agree. It's, uh, it's the best name in a book of good names. I agree. It's a wonderful name. Personally, I think the Raven King is a wonderful name, too. But, uh, but anyway. Oh, sorry, the Gentleman. Oh, Emily. Oh, how, how embarrassing. How mortifying. The Gentleman with the thistle-down hair. He is unquestionably a gentleman. Um, uh, I, I, I stand, I stand uh, 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 st- uh, sternly rebuked and uh, um, profitably corrected. Anyway. Let's look at the fairy's assumptions about English magic, right? Uh, he has a very different point of view than we've seen uh, from anybody else. I, I am the man who is destined to receive... He's asked, uh, he's asked, the fairy has just asked Norrell who he is, right? Who does he think he is? I, I'm the man who is destined to restore magic to England, stammered Mr. Norrell, grabbing back his wig and replacing it slightly askew upon his head. "'Well, obviously you're that,' said the gentleman. "'Or I should not be here. "'Do you imagine that I would waste my time "'upon a three-penny hedge sorcerer, do you? "'But who are you? "'But who are you? "'That is what I wish to know. "'What magic have you done? "'Who, is your, who was your master? "'What magical lands have you visited? "'What enemies have you defeated? "'Who are your allies?' "'Mr. Norrell was extremely surprised "'to be asked so many questions, "'and he was not at all prepared to answer them. "'He wavered and hesitated "'before finally fixing upon the only one "'to which he had a sensible answer. "'I had no master. "'I taught myself. "'How? "'From books? "'Books!' "'This in a tone of the utmost contempt. 
What does he assume? What is the fairy's definition of English magic based on this description? What does it mean to be a magician? Good, John, you're right. He assumes a magician is a man of action. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, 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 Captain Harcourt Bruce would be delighted. He absolutely does assume that the mag- a magician is going to be a man of action. Right? Um, the questions that Norrell asks, like when he is speaking condescendingly, mockingly, uh, to Segundus and Honeyfoot in his library, it are, is basically... What books have you read? Right? That's not the question that the fairy asks him. He doesn't ask him what books you have read. He asks him, what enemies have you defeated? What magical lands have you visited? What enemies have you defeated? Who are your allies? Granted, John, as you say, granted you are a man of action if you are a magician. You must have been going about doing all these things. Obviously you have fought. Obviously you have... uh, uh, you have formed allies in order to aid you in your in your combats, right? Um, so, who, right? How? What? Those are the assumptions that he makes. Um, and uh, yeah, interesting. Philip Lord says he speaks like it's a trade. Um, yeah, in a sense, in a sense, he does. Um, that is that he had a master in the sense of that that he served as an apprentice. And this tells... this That's, you know, Chris, I go back to your point, Chris Swank. Um, this is... Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a medieval mode, right? He's thinking like a medieval tradesman would. Uh, to, be a, uh, to be an apprentice uh, and to uh, earn your way in a guild was a very... Uh, I mean, you weren't aristocracy, you know, you weren't in the you weren't in the second estate, you were still in the third estate, you know, in the uh, you were still basically a peasant but still, that was a, that was a very um, uh, a very respectable path to take. And that seems that's the, clearly, the, that's clearly the mode the fairy operates in, right? Um, he assumed that he had apprenticed himself to a master. He does not understand modern magic, obviously. Um... Good, yeah, Carita says, much more like a knight than a lawyer. Yes, I would say even more like a guildsman, but, but, but even like a knight. I mean, uh, even knights, as you say, Carita, still served as squires, other knights. Um, you know, not quite uh, so humbly, perhaps, but still, but still. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. And Christian, you're right. He would have. Uh, he, he he he. It shows us not just that he has outdated assumptions, but that he has been around. It's, it's not that he harkens back to the old days. He was there in the old days. He's still living the old days. The old days aren't even old to him. Um, yeah, good. And John Milling, good. An, another good point there. The the implication there also is that you rise by merit and you're not locked in by gentility. That is, um, if you have if you study under, I mean, if if you you might be nobody, but if you have some talent and you study under Ralph Stokesy, then you might be a great magician who could earn the respect of, you know, our our friend the fairy here. Um, yeah, and and especially if you established good alliances. I mean, after all, who was the Raven King, right? What are the Raven King's antecedents? 
Um, you know, we haven't... I don't think we've been told at this point the whole story of the Raven King and his background in history. But, um, but uh, he certainly wasn't an aristocrat. So we do... I, I think we do, John, can see evidence can see evidence for that. So again, we can see there's nothing that more plainly illustrates the difference, not just between... You know, again, it's one thing to, to, to say Mr. Norrell is not vinculus, right? When Mr. Norrell seeks to separate himself and his brand of magic from the charlatans and mountebanks of the streets of London with their yellow curtains, that's one thing, right? He's separate from them in lots of ways. He's a gentleman, and they're not. Um, he is cultured and polite, and they're not. He is a real magician and can do real magic, and they cannot. Um, you know, let us count the ways in which he is distinguished from the vinculuses of the world. But he's distinct even. Um, he is clearly just as distinct, though in different ways, from the actual people of that tradition, the actual Orient magicians um, whose tradition has been degraded into the street uh, magicians of the modern era, right? The vinculuses of the world. Again, if they're shadows of the, you know, if they're if they're recollections of the Raven King, they are distant recollections, and they are faint, faint shadows of the Raven King. They can't even really do magic. Um, but Mr. Norrell seems, as we've seen, wants to distinguish himself just as much from that. So we can see how out of step he is, not just with the degraded and diminished uh, remnant of English magic that still sort of is dragging out its fraudulent existence uh, in modern England. He's not only distinct from that, but he is completely out of step. So he, again, nothing shows more plainly than this conversation that Mr. Norrell is not reviving English magic. He is redefining it. He's taking it in a completely new direction. He has turned. He has set his face against English magic, traditional English magic. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, James, that's a wonderful way to think about it. James uh, Lebach says he's really an evolution of the theoretical magician. Great way to think about it. Yes, he is the theoretical magician perfected. Sir Walter was right. Right, when Sir Walter Pohl looks at him and says, oh, no, you've got theoretical magician written all over you, of course. He is. He is a perfect theoretical magician. So perfect that he's a practical magician, right? But he is a, he is a magician in the modern mode with that one minor distinction that he actually can perform magic. Um, yeah, good. Yes, Donna, he, uh, Norrell is also uh, literate, highly literate, scholarly, bookish. Um, whereas the Oriots might not have been. No, in fact, we're told explicitly that many of them were not. Uh, the Oriots did not write down their stuff. Um, in fact, many of them actively despised writing. Um, and even the Raven King, as we'll learn, had, a, had an ambivalent relationship with writing and the written word. The written word. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very good. Um, well, we've done pretty well tonight. We're right up to... Uh, the, the, my next slide is about uh, Vinculus uh, and Mr. Norrell. But I think I'm going to say Vinculus and Mr. Norrell. We're coming up towards the end of class here, and I don't want to shortchange 
Vinculus. This is our first glimpse at Vinculus and his prophecies. We'll get others, um, but this is our first one, and I don't want to shortchange that. I want to look carefully, especially, you know, not not least because it's in verse, uh, and, uh, and any of you who know me well at all will know that uh, when I got to the poetry, I, I immediately... Uh, sat up a little straighter and leaned forward a little bit more. Um, so I definitely want to be looking at the poetry um, that Vinculus yells uh, at Mr. Norrell. So we'll start with Vinculus next time, and then of course next time we will finally get introduced to Jonathan Strange. Um, so of course we'll want to look, so we'll look at Vinculus next time, we'll look at Jonathan Strange next time. Um, so I believe we're, we're going to finish part one uh, of the you know the book of course is in three parts we'll we'll we'll, we'll complete part one next time um, so uh, I hope you all will join me thank you for all of your wonderful comments and discussion tonight uh, I really enjoyed that I look forward to finishing part one with you next time I hope you have a good week don't forget about uh, all the stuff going on don't forget about uh, about our fundraiser I hope you'll be able to uh, to support us and continue to help the Mythgard Ac- uh, Academy carry on happening uh, in the coming year. So thanks very much, everybody, and I will talk to you guys later. Good night.